human beings have a natural and innate need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now, that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, that might be cannabis, but you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. If you have a crisis in your life, you'll notice something. It won't be your Twitter followers who come to sit with you. It won't be your Facebook friends who help you turn it around. It'll be your flesh and blood friends who you have deep and nuanced and textured face-to-face -face relationships with. And I think there's a, there's a study I learned about from Bill McKibben, the environmental writer, I think tells us a lot about this. There's a, it looked at the number of close friends the average American believes they can call on in a crisis. That number has been declining steadily since the 1950s. The amount of floor space an individual has in their home has been steadily increasing. And I think that's like a metaphor for the choice we've made as a culture, right? We've traded floor space for friends. We've traded stuff for connections. And the result is that we are one of the loneliest societies there has ever been. We talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery. And it's right to talk about that. But we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something's gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. Well, good morning. That is a video that I uh, referenced back, I think, in May in the One Another series. Uh, uh, I was talking about the fact that you can't do one another's without one another, and uh, reference that video. And so there's a little clip from that, uh, really, really bottom line, talking about addictions. But he's talking about addictions within the, or talking about relationship, but he's talking about uh, relationships within the context of addiction. So let me define a word for you here before we move on, because this will be the basis of everything we say. When I say relationships, um, I'm not talking about how many people you have in your your phone, how many contacts you have. And I'm not talking about um, how many, I, I don't do social media, what do you call face, friends, Facebook friends, I guess, or contact, whatever. I'm not talking about how many people you have, acquaintances or people on your thing, you know. Um, and I'm not talking about, um, you know, all the people you've known in your past and your neighbors and your whatever. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when I say relationship, there's some key words that identify real relationship, and it's, it's these. It's authenticity. Are you authentic? Do you allow other people to be authentic with you? Are you transparent? Are you open? Are you appropriate? You can be transparent and inappropriate. Please don't do that. Be transparent, but be appropriate. There's a time and a place for things, right? Um, are your relationships uh, characterized by reciprocity? Or are you a giver? Or I'm sorry, are you a taker all the time? Or conversely, you always give, but you never see, I don't need anything. Jesus saved me, I'm okay. So is there reciprocity? So when I talk about relationship, that's, that's what I'm saying. Now, a couple things before I, I jump in. When we um, kind of prepare these messages, you know, there, there's a series, right? We've got, we're in the origin series, and then within the series, there's a series of messages. And we don't compare notes about messages from week to week, generally speaking. We might touch base here and there, but generally not. And just leave it to the Holy Spirit to line things up. And I've been amazed. I told Jason and Ben this a couple weeks ago. I've been amazed in this origin series, without comparing notes, how every one of these messages is just stacked right on top of one another. Overlapped a little, but not too much. Actually, there's been times when I've been sitting there and Jason will say something. I'm like, dude, 
that is exactly what I'm going to say next week. And then he goes, and then he stops and like sets it up for the next week. And so I say that to say this, this message that I'm going to share with you today, I've had cooking in my head for at least 20 years, at least 20 years. And I've had it more refined in my mind for this time in this place for three or four weeks. And I was out of town last week. I didn't see Jason's message, but I logged in. I could see the notes. And so I glanced at his notes. And again, the Holy Spirit just teed it up just perfectly for this week. And so I say that to say this. Last week, I think Ben mentioned it was a little PG-13. Today's PG-13 and a little beyond that. And so if that's something that'd be difficult for you, understand totally. I get it. Um, maybe, you know, watch it later online. Or if you're watching online right now, maybe pick it up uh, later on, you know, when, when you're able to do that, when you're in the right time and the right place. But I share this message with you from this background, speaking of transparency, um, of deep and long-lasting sexual sin deep and long-lasting, to the point that, and I wasn't a believer until I was 34 years old, I didn't accept Christ until then, to the point that in my younger years, I remember thinking, I mean, we went to church, kinda, I knew that there was a God and there was some sort of a bad guy, you know, whatever you called him, the devil, Satan, whatever, so lost in that sin to the point that there were several times in the middle of something what I remember thinking to myself, this is like demonic. This, this is, what's going on here is weird, man. It's beyond weird. It's demonic. And I wasn't even a believer. In, I mean, I believe Jesus existed, but that was about it. And so that's where I come from. And so uh, we're going to get a little more um, conceptual first, but then we're going to drill down, okay, to get to the street level part. And so you think about relationships, I think of all the series we've done in the last uh, year or two years. I think, you know, the One Another's series, we did the marriage series. Uh, we've done Ephesians 4. We did, um, you know, the neighboring thing last summer. I mean, we've done all these series on, on, uh, that have to do with relationships. And within the series, if it's not strictly about relationships, within the series, there's probably a teaching or an application point that's all about relationship. And on the one hand, I've got all this, this background, all this experience with the Lord on this. On the other hand, I'm like, Lord, I don't know what else there is to say, man. I feel like we have exhausted this. Can we move on to something else? And no, we can't move on to something else. So where we normally descend and take a ground level look, we're going to do that. But first, we're going to get conceptual, all right? So let me jump in. And uh, first, I want to pray because I know that uh, some of the things I'm going to talk about the second half of this message, if you come from a place of sexual sin, whether you've been on the receiving end of that, whether you've been on the other end of that, where you were the instigator of that, uh, some of the things I might say might stir something up, okay? And we don't want that. So let me pray right now, and we're going to clean that up and make sure that the Lord protects us, protects our minds and our hearts from that. So let me pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word that is uh, living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we thank you for the blood of Christ that surrounds us, that protects us, under which we have complete covering, complete shelter. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous run into it, and they're safe. And for those of us this morning in this room, for those of us watching online, for those watching later in the week, those of us who call upon your name as Lord, as Savior, 
we run under the shelter of your name. And Father, I ask you for protection from uh, incidences of the past. And I thank you for uh, clearing our minds and our hearts and reminding us just now before we begin that there's no condemnation regardless of our background. There's no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, if COVID uh, taught us anything, or it probably reminded you of something, it's this. It's that, you know what, it's not good for people to be alone. I'm not talking about personality. I'm not talking about if you're a, um, a sanguine and you're really out there and you love being around people all the time. You know, it's not good for you to be alone. But even people like me who have no problem sitting on my deck for like three weeks reading a book with nobody around, I'd, I'd be fine with that. It's not good to be alone. You can become an isolator and your head can get weird. Yeah, and that's not, that's not a good thing. It's not good for us to be alone. In fact, what COVID taught us is exactly what the Scripture says, if you hit the slide, exactly what God said. God says, uh, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, one who balances him, a counterpart who is suitable and complementary for him. And the next slide shows us, the entirety of Scripture shows us that. And so here's a big smattering of of things that say the exact same thing. We need relationship. We need authenticity. We need transparency. We need other people around us. But did you know that Genesis chapter 2 is not the starting point for relationship? Relationship, that concept of relationship, didn't begin when God started creation. It actually started way back in eternity past. We see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in relationship in the next slide, in relationship way before he created anything that you and I experience right now. See, let us make man in our image over and over and over. You see the concept there. Here's what Paul Tripp, the uh, pastor, says about this. He says, the creator lives in a community within the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit, and, is huma- and, made, and he made humanity in his likeness. We were meant to experience the joy of conflict-free, horizontal community while vertically communing in the presence of the triune God. In other words, relationships, God developed relationship as an expression of our connection with him. So my connections with others, by and large, should be an expression of my connection with him. Or, conversely, my connections with other people, if you call them connections, are a reflection of the fact that I don't know him at all. And it was that way for many years. So we see that relationship existed long, long, long before uh, creation, long before creation. But it became, this became the pattern that God used when he created man and he created the garden and he created you and I uh, to populate the garden and to manage the things that he gives us. So it's one thing to hear about relationship, okay? I mean, most, I haven't said anything you probably didn't already know. You probably haven't seen anything you probably didn't already know. Maybe it was phrased a little bit differently. Uh, But it's another thing entirely um, to plunge the depths of relationship. And that's what I'm going to start to do today. We can't do it fully. Um, We'll be here 20 years and beyond to fully plunge the depth of what God's talking about. But to let the nuance settle into you, that takes some time. You don't rush that. That takes time for the nuance of this relationship to get inside of us. So let me begin our 30,000 foot, our conceptual look at Uh, relationship with an explanation. If you go to the next slide. 
The Bible, by and large, uh, except for maybe Luke, was written by uh, people who spoke Semitic languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Arabic, rather. And conceptual thought works like this. It examines the entirety of something, which is why I often put up lots of slides like I've just done a couple times here with just a smattering of Scripture to prove a point. Okay, so we don't build a theology on one verse taken out of context or one idea and twist it and make what we want to say. We take all of what God says, and that's conceptual. Conceptual thought, conceptual writing takes all of what God says and sums it all up and then draws a conclusion, draws a picture for your mind. A quick example would be this. The writer of Proverbs says, says this, and this is right before lunch, so this is awesome. As a dog returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The concept is when you and I return to our sin over and over and over again, it's as ridiculous, it's as disgusting, it's as distasteful as a dog going out and licking up his vomit. That's a conceptual thought. That's what conceptual thought does, conceptual writing does. By contrast, on the next slide, there is abstract thought. That's us, English speakers, Greeks maybe. It examines part of something and then it draws a conclusion. And so abstract thought would take a picture of maybe right here on my, my shirt and say, this is Bob's shirt. It's not inaccurate, is it? It is blue, and it does have a white button, but it's fragmented. It's not wrong, it's just fragmented. It's, it's not the whole picture. The whole picture is, does it have a pocket? Does it have a collar of any kind? What kind of collar? Does it have sleeve, long sleeves, short sleeves? Is it meant to be tucked, untucked? You know, all these things. That's what abstract thought does. Abstract thought takes John 3.16 and says, bam, here is God's love, period. That's it. And that's not wrong. That does demonstrate God's love. But that's part of it. That's not the entire picture. It's accurate, but it's fragmented. And so with that as a background, we're going to begin our 30,000-foot look uh, by diving into Genesis. But before I get there, it's possible to get the entirety, this, abs- or, sorry, this concept of God's love because the people who wrote the Bible, by and large, again, probably except for Luke, were conceptual thinkers. And so their writing, their style was to develop this concept all the way through Scripture, not to rush it, but to go from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And so when Paul says this in Ephesians 3, when he says he wants us to grasp how wide and how long and high and how deep is the love of Christ, This is what he's talking about. Get the concept. Grab the concept and wring that thing out for 20 or 30 years or for as long as you have uh, left to live. And so that's what we're going to do. Because once you see the entire concept of God's love, God's design for relationships, it's easy to identify the imitations. That will be the second half of what I want to share this morning, the ground level, the street level part of what we're going to talk about. Well, let's start with Genesis chapter 1, where the concept begins. Remember, the concept is relationship, okay? Here's what it says. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The point here is relationship begins at creation. And you say, well, okay, that doesn't really tell me anything. That verse doesn't really tell me that. Well, here's the key. The key is... uh, face of, the face of. The Hebrew word is pene. Pene means this. Pene means to turn toward. 
And so if you go to the next slide, there's a definition on there. To turn toward. Whereas repentance is to turn away from and to walk away from, pane is to turn toward God and, turn, and be toward him. To be face to face and in the presence of. Like a husband and wife, face to face, eye to eye, mouth to mouth. And that is where this concept of uh, create relationship begins in creation. So we've got God in relationship. The Spirit of God, it said, was hovering over the face of the deep. We've got God in a face-to-face working relationship with his creation. And man and woman haven't even been created yet. He's in relationship with his creation face-to-face. And that becomes the pattern you see all the way through Scripture. And so that might seem like an odd beginning, okay? And it is. It's a little obscure. But remember, when it's, it's a concept, you have to run it all the way through Scripture. You have to run it out to its end. You can't just take this one verse. You've got to take it all the way. And I think the next slide shows us, yeah, here's a, a smattering of, of uh, times when that word pene was used, or a derivative. Genesis 32, Jacob called the place Peniel. Jacob wrestled with God And he says, I wrestled with God, yet my life was spared. He realized this is an amazing thing. I saw God's face, but I'm still alive to talk about it. And he named the place Peniel, which is a derivative of Pene, and all the way through Scripture. Finally, you get down to 1 Corinthians. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when we're with him, we'll see face to face, unhindered, nothing in between us. And there's so much more. That word Pene is also translated presence, surface, front, before, countenance, And so think about all the scripture when you read those words. That's what's being described. That's what the writers are, that's the concept they're walking you through, okay? This word pene shows up about 1,200 times in different forms. When something shows up 1,200, you say it to me once or twice, I'm thinking, oh, that's cute, that's nice, you know. 1,200 times, I start to get the idea that you really mean it, that something's really up here. So think about Think about this. What word would you use to describe the gospel? One word. Think of a word. Redemption? Yeah. Uh, Salvation? You bet. Freedom? Peace? Joy? Acceptance? Absolutely. Here's a word for you to describe the gospel. Face. Right? Probably not the word you'd come up with. But it's the word that God comes up with to describe his love toward us. Well, let's continue in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So at the time of creation, God blew his ruach, his spirit, his essence, his breath, his life. He blew his ruach into man, and man became a living, breathing being. And the only way that God can do that can impart his breath into man is through a face-to-face relationship. Like a paramedic or a firefighter or a lifesaver breathing life into a, somebody who's not victim, or who's a victim, they're not breathing. It involves a face-to-face connection, mouth-to-mouth, very personal, very personal, and life uh, is imparted to them. And the result here, when God breathes that breath of life, the result is you and I become anema, animated. Animated. I'll show you what Paul says about that in just a second. But you think of uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, and we've got the valley of dry bones, right? And God takes Ezekiel out to this big valley full of nothing but bones, and he says to him, son of man, can these bones live? 
And Ezekiel says, hey, only you know, Lord. We'll prophesy to these bones, God says, and tell them to come together. And so he prophesies, and these bones rattle, and they come together, and they form a skeleton. Now prophesy, son of man, to these bones, and now they start to grow sinew, and they start to grow tendons, and they start to grow muscle, and then skin covers them. And you notice an amazing thing when you get to verse 14. God says, I will put my spirit in you, ruach, and you will live, and I will settle in your own land. And you know what he's saying? Is outside of God's breath on our soul, you just have existence, man. Paul says it this way, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Outside of relationship with him, you and I fill a, fill a place for 70 or 80 or 90 years, and we go to work and we do this and we do whatever, you know, we just, we just have existence. In him... We live, we move, we have our being, we have real life, we have connection with him, and that life doesn't end here, it goes on, it goes on. Well, there's so much more about this. I mean, this, you could do this for years, looking for references to God's uh, face-to-face connection with us through scripture, it's everywhere. I hope you see that when you start reading scripture, because it's all over the place. But if you keep reading, you get that concept clearly. But, and here's the concept. Christianity, God's word defines Christianity, if you take it all its entirety, in terms of the intimate one-on-one relationship a man and a wife share when they're intimate. That is God's concept of relationship with you and with me for all who call on his name. That's the picture he's uh, portraying. You know, the Bible refers to Uh, believers as the bride of Christ. You and I are the bride of Christ. If you go to John chapter 14, there's a great illustration of that. Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you can't come right now, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And some Bibles, the King James, some Bibles take that, that word place and they translate it into mansions and then we get off into a weird prosperity theology, um, which is false, by the way. Um, or they translate that uh, word a little more accurately into rooms. It's a little more accurate. But the word means this. The word is moan, and it means a dwelling place or an abode. It means a communion, participation, companionship. And you drill way down. Here's the implication. It means it refers to sexual intimacy. Jesus is going to prepare a place for you and I, one day when we're with him face to face, to have that kind of connection with him, where he penetrates the soul, and he does something in us that was never there before, something new, something is alive in us uh, that I could never create, that he does. But you know, here's the deal. You and I have an enemy, this guy, Satan, who, as I said, I believed he probably existed, but I didn't know anything about him, and he's an imitator. And, uh, in fact, Jesus says that he's not just a liar, he's the father of all lies. Jesus says every time he speaks a word, it's a lie. So, anytime Satan says something, it's a lie. And because his mission statement for you and I is to kill and to steal and destroy, you know one way he could do that? 
a very effective way is to go right at the foundation of everything. You can mess around with all this stuff up here, but if you attack the foundation, everything else comes down. And the foundation is intimacy, is pene, is face-to-face, breath-to-breath, eye-to-eye connection with God. And that's exactly what Satan goes after. In a really heinous twist, he attacks that exact thing in the form of sexual sin of all kinds. We don't need to describe them, but... You can imagine from the things over here that seem mm, eh, not so bad, a little mild, whatever. It's, it's harmless. It's recreational, whatever. All the way over to the worst thing I hope you can't imagine. He attacks that foundation of intimacy, of connection, of pene, in the form of, of uh, fakes, false things. So he takes advantage of our hardwired need for connection. The, uh, the guy in the video, in the TED Talk, he, I don't know him, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he nailed it. We're hardwired with a need for connection, for relationship. And I believe the enemy knows that. And if he can create a fake, an imitation that we might go for, kind of like a fish grabbing onto a lure, then he stands a chance of getting us, drawing us away from him. And you know what all that sexual sin is? Pornography masturbation, uh, uh, relationships outside of marriage, relationships even though I'm married outside of my marriage, fantasy thoughts, all that is, it's a pacifier. It's all a pacifier. You know, pacifier is for a baby, right? Calms them down, quiets them for a few minutes. They feel it's the real thing. Baby doesn't know. It seems like the real thing. I was crying, now I'm not. Something's in my mouth. It's a pacifier. Sexual sin is a pacifier. It's not a real connection. But, you know, quiets me down for a minute, so I'm good with it. I was writing something many years ago for, for a presentation, and this, um, this sentence just kind of leaped out of, my, out of my pen or typewriter or whatever I was doing. And it was this. Sexual sin is a distortion in the physical of how God deals with us in the spiritual. Sexual sin is a distortion in our physical connections, relationships, of how God deals with us in our spiritual relationships. And that, I wrote that, and I went, that's good, Lord, thanks, man. I would have never thought of that. That's exactly right. Here's a book I've read. So, so the Lord rescued me out of years and years and years of this crap. Years of this crap. And then I started asking him, God, what did you do, man? I just knew I was free, and I loved it. But I started saying, God, what did you do? How'd you pull that off, man? And he started to show me, and I read, I've got books and books and books on sexual addiction. And so let me, let me stop right here and say, we use the term sexual addiction. How about this? Because most people would say, well, I'm not, not addicted because you know, I, don't, I don't like that, the way that sounds. Good, you shouldn't like that. How about this word? How about obsessed? Have you noticed that? culture is obsessed with that. Watch a football game or watch the news or something and you see advertisements for things. It's like, I don't need to see that, man. You know, just, it's just crazy. And I, like I said, I'm not even on social media. I, I'm sure that's 20 times worse. But I read this book by Dr. Harry Schomburg. Here's the title of it, False Intimacy. False Intimacy, Understanding the Struggle of Sexual Addiction. Great book. Dr. Schomburg is a believer, knows Jesus. Here's what he says. Here's kind of the bottom line. 
He says we must not assume that sexual addiction or obsession, okay, is an attempt to find real intimacy in actuality, and it's it's an avoidance of the pain often caused by real intimacy. The primary goal of sexually addictive behavior is to avoid relational pain, essentially to control life. And so when um, we're involved, when a person's involved in that kind of behavior, it's all about them. It seems like what I'm really after, because I have this hardwired need for connection with people, it seems like what I'm really after is real relationship, real connection, but what I'm chasing is a fake thing that can't ever deliver. But you know what? I'm okay with that because it's all about me. I get what I want. I get it when I want it. And I don't have any relational pain because in real relationships, people let you down. They disappoint you. They don't do what you want them to do. They do things you don't want them to do. They, they think I let them down. And there's give and take. There's this reciprocity. And gosh, you know what, man? That's a drag. It's just a lot easier just to do my thing and get my needs met, I think. That's a shortcut. And it never satisfies in the end. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It never satisfies in the end. And that's what, uh, that's what Dr. Schomburg has to say about that. It's good stuff. Good book. Good book. You got to read that if, if you have a mind to. Well, let me finish up with, with one picture from Scripture. This is a picture from um, about the 8th century B.C. with Hosea. And we'll show you the slide in just a second. But let me set it up for you. Hosea is a prophet, and the Lord, of course, loves Israel, loves his people, and his people, as you know from reading the Old Testament, they keep being unfaithful. They keep going back and forth and back and forth and, and cheating on the Lord, being unfaithful to him. And um, God wants to reach his people desperately to show them the depth of his love, of Pene toward them. So he speaks to this prophet, um, Hosea, and he says, hey, I'm going to have you marry this gal by the name of Gomer. One thing, though, She's a prostitute. She represents Israel because she couldn't be faithful if you paid her to. In fact, she does lots of other things because you pay her to. But I'm going to have you marry her, and that's going to become a picture of my love for Israel, okay? And Hosea does that. And so here's the setup. We've got Israel back and forth all the time being unfaithful to the Lord. So with that as a backdrop, here's what Hosea chapter 2 says. Therefore, in light of all that, Therefore, I'm now I'm going to allure her. I'll lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I'll give her back her vineyards, and I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There, she'll respond in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you'll no longer call me my master. Let me explain two things, and then we'll get to the point of this. When he says, I'm going to allure Israel, don't you love that imagery? That's relationship. That's Panay. I'm going to draw her in. I'm going to make myself so attractive, there's no way Israel can, can uh, turn away from me, can reject me. And when I pray for people, I was just telling somebody this the other night, when I pray for people um, who don't know the Lord, when I pray for people who do know the Lord, but they're not really connected with him, when they're struggling with, with whatever, uh, this is my prayer along the, those same lines. Psalm 107 says, God satisfies, says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. He satisfies the hungry and the thirsty soul. And Jesus says, uh, Matthew 7, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. So the condition is hunger and thirst for righteousness, and the promise is you'll be filled. And that's my prayer for people who don't know the Lord. 
honestly, I'm sorry, Ben, I don't generally invite them first off, come to church. Although you stand a better chance of knowing the Lord if you come to church and not. My first prayer is, God, make them hungry and thirsty. Create in them the hunger and the thirst that's needed so that you can satisfy that with your presence, with Panay in their life. People who are wrestling with issues, because we're alive and breathing, we wrestle with issues, right? Um, God, make them hungry and thirsty. Whatever condition they're in, whatever they're settling for now, whatever they've made peace with in their life, make them so stinking miserable with the peace they've made with that sin or with that behavior or that attitude. Make them so miserable with that that they can't do anything else but come to you and say, I, I surrender. God, I need you, man. Fill me. Penetrate me with your spirit. And so God allures Israel. He draws her in. Now, second thing to explain is the Valley of Achor. Very quickly, Joshua chapter 7, you've got this guy named Achan, right? And he takes these things from uh, the tabernacle, and he hides them in his tent, these sacred objects, and it comes to light, and we need to find out who it is, and I'm, like, skipping through this real fast. And he has them, um, and so they take him and his family out, and they stone them to death. That's the penalty. They stone them, and the place where they're stoned, this little valley where their stone is the Valley of Achor. And God says to Israel, I'm going to make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. The crap in your life, the crap in my life that I grabbed onto for years, the fakes, God is going to use and make that a door of hope to give hope to other people. So I chased all that crap for all those years, and here I get to stand here and talk about this. I mean, who would have thought that? That's what God does. Now, here's the point of this. I'm talking about Panay. Remember, the concept is Panay. It's intimacy. It's face-to-face -face connection. There is a huge difference relationally. There's a huge difference. There's a wide, wide, wide gap between um, masters and husbands. Masters, that denotes um, somebody who may or may not be heavy-handed, but it, it denotes somebody who's in charge uh, somebody who has uh, people subservient to them. It denotes somebody with certain levels of authority and, and, and trust and all that. Um, in this context, it's not a good thing. It can be a good thing, but it's not a good thing. Husband, on the other hand, denotes a whole different thing. It denotes intimacy. See, a master, you can be a master and not be intimate with your employees. Just, it's a contract. It's a job. Get the job done, Okay. You can't be a husband, an effective husband, without panay, without face-to-face -face connection with your spouse and with the Lord. And when God, well, so I'd say this, you can, you can believe, think of the examples in your life, you can believe that spouses, husbands and wives who are affirmed and they're loved and they have a connection with Jesus and a connection with others and a connection with their spouse, you can believe they think about themselves they carry themselves, they respond to situations differently than somebody who's in a subservient relationship. And they're probably maybe carry themselves like that a little bit. Understand why, I get it. And so God says out of Panay, I will call you, or you'll call me husband, no longer master. It won't be a set of rules that you have to, to obey. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Egypt, or with the house of Israel, rather. And he says, bottom line, get this, Panay, 
I'll put my spirit in them and cause them to obey me. But it's going to be my spirit in them, not from without. Okay. All this is possible. All this relationship is possible because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Face-to-face relationship. Now, I close with this last story. This is a true story. Our uh, daughter and son-in-law have a good friend in San Diego. His name's Tim, Tim Day. Tim Day owns uh, Daylight Solutions, and he has a doctorate in, in uh, um, electrical engineering from Stanford. And Daylight Solutions um, works with lasers. And so he's got defense contracts. He develops laser technology for medical fields, for manufacturing, all kinds of stuff. And, and you go on their website, you might understand it. I don't understand a thing that he says on the website. Not a thing. I get the word when he says, hello, my name is Tim Day. That I get. That I got. Beyond that, I know nothing. Tim Day, as I said, has a doctorate from Stanford, and he could talk about uh, electricity forever. We've been to his place, and he didn't bore us with that, thankfully. But he could talk about how to generate electricity how to manufacture it in creative ways. He can talk about how to distribute electricity to different parts of the country. He can talk about how to store it. He can talk about how to conserve it. He can talk about how to use it wisely. He can tell you everything you want to know about electricity. That's Tim Day. Loves the Lord. He's a great guy. He's a great guy, aside from electricity. (laughs) Over here, I got an acquaintance from my years in um, television production an acquaintance by the name of Peter. And Peter was, uh, and I think in 2000, Peter was working on a, a remote truck uh, for a news station. And he went out uh, to the city park uh, doing this, this uh, live shot. And he gets the van set up, and he starts raising the antenna mast, and he takes a shortcut. So there's a button that you push to raise the antenna mast. And the idea is that when you push the button, it goes up. and you don't push the button, it doesn't go up on purpose. Well, there's a little shortcut that you can take. I've done it myself, and you put a little clip on that button. So while that mass is going up, you can go out and do other things. And so in that case, he put the clip on the button, the mass is going up. He went out and he ran the cables and everything. And unbeknownst to him, that mast had stopped because it connected with a power line. And he came back to the truck, and he grabbed onto something in the truck, and he completed the circuit, and he took 15,000 volts of electricity. An electric chair designed to kill you, right? Electric chair is like 2,000, 2,300 volts. He took seven times, a little over seven times more electricity in his body. He was penetrated by electricity. He had an experience with electricity. And he bears the scar for that. If you saw him, he works at the Lutheran Church of Hope now. And if you saw him and looked at the back of his head, you go, yep, he had an experience with electricity. But here's the point. Tim knows electricity. Peter has had an experience, an intimate, deep experience with electricity that he will never forget. He's had, in a manner of speaking, penne with electricity, not by his choosing, of course. And so, as we uh, close here, Nick, you want to come? As we close here, um, here's the question. First of all, do you know Jesus? Do you know him as Savior? Do you know him as Lord? Are there fakes in your life? Maybe it's not sexual sin. Maybe there's other imitation things that you've tended to grab onto that have, that have kind of worked for you, more or less. There's a million of them. I don't even bother mentioning. There's a million of them. 
false solutions to real God-given needs. Are there any of those in your life? And then, have you had experience with Jesus? Now, we can't live the Christian life by experience alone because then we become weird and wacky and, you know, that's not even the way it was meant to be. But there's a balance there. Paul said, you know, do everything in balance, okay? So there's a place for experience with, with the Lord. There's a place for study, study to show yourself approved. There's a place for study and, and meditation and interaction with other people. But there's a place for experience and just to say, Lord, come and meet me. And like Peter, maybe I don't even need to know what the heck happened. Or why? I just know that I've been penetrated, that you live in me, that in you I live and I move and I have my being. And apart from you, all I do is exist. And Lord, I repent. I turn away from fakes, from imitations. That's the first half. Turn away from that. But better than that, I turn toward you to be face to face with you. Let me pray.